How much data is too much data? I'll talk with Alex Chamberlain from Fangraphs and Todd Zola from Masters Ball, Rotowire, Sirius XM, ESPN, and podcasts, including this one, next on Baseball HQ Radio. Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Tuesday, March the 9th. It's show number 11 of the 2021 Fantasy Baseball season. I am Patrick Davitt, your host, and we do have another great Tootow Tuesday edition for you with two great guests. First, we'll have our feature interview with Alex Chamberlain from Fangraphs, discussing how much data is too much data, progress is being made on ERA estimators, the one important use of max exit velocity for hitters, his boons and banes, and even more. Then we'll have our second feature interview with Todd Zola, discussing the new normal in fantasy terminology, including formats where pretend money is assigned to players, alternatives to wins and saves, and much more as well. It's another big Two-Tout Tuesday edition. Thanks very much for joining us at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? Draft season is rocking and rolling. We've got to talk some baseball. Just as the great fantasy baseball invitational wraps up. Last slam, the points league is getting rolling. I won't bore you with the details of my drafts. I have lots of other stuff to bore you with. But neither of our two Tout Tuesday guests falls into that category. So let's get to it. In the first inning of this two Tout Tuesday edition, our expert interview with Alex Chamberlain from Fangraphs. Alex, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. It's been quite a while. Yeah, thanks for having me back, Patrick. Appreciate it. Uh, how much drafting have you been doing so far this year, and how have the drafts been going? Not a lot of drafts. This is, um, I'm saying this because I'm I'm in the middle of both TGFBI and Razzlam, which I assume you are too. Yes. Um, those are my third and fourth drafts of the year, and that's it. I haven't done any mocks. I've done one industry league. Uh, it's a keeper league, and then I did one draft champion. So that's a, a a draft and hold through NFBC. So that's all I've done so far. By all accounts, I'm woefully unprepared for <laughs> 2021, but we'll we'll see how it goes. It's what happens when you have a brand new child in the house. Uh, baseball draft planning can kind of go a little bit sideways. Having said that, are you the kind of guy who likes to test out new strategies or new approaches when you go into these drafts, or do you pretty much have an idea what you want to do based on pretty much what you've been doing all along? I, I kind of enjoy using the um excuse me the uh the public uh industry drafts to kind of kind of get a different feel for things like i feel like if i i've got money on the line like if it's a high stakes league um i'm definitely going to be more prone to doing kind of the tried and true method but i feel like um you know why not like i'm not i'm not punting or anything i'm not it's not that i'm not trying but i might as well like if i'm if i'm having a kind of a different uh, uh, thought process about a certain way of approaching uh, roster construction or I, I want to kind of get myself away from the guys I'm always drafting, it kind of forces me into um, an uncomfortable situation, but one in which I have to kind of, uh, you know, adapt. And I kind of like that feeling and I, I like using these drafts for that. So um, I would say it's it's a little of both. I definitely do fall on some of the, the old habits and, and guys that I can't help but target but uh, i'm trying to keep it fresh and uh and and change it up a little bit 
the thing is, when you're successful in various drafts over your lifetime, especially the recent ones, I know some people call it recency bias, but if you've been successful in leagues in particular formats, why would you change it? At a certain point, you have to think, you know, maybe I've got this pretty much figured out and absent any changes in the, in the scoring structure or in the, in the guys who are in the league, the different kinds of guys. Personally, I've had some success in some formats and I tend to repeat those. And if I have a bad experience, I tend not to. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. And I, I'm, I kind of feel the same way. And I, I think a lot of it boils down to the ADP structure. Um, cause I, I definitely use ADP as a, as a map for when I should be, when I should start targeting certain guys. And I think it's not to go on a tangent, but it's, I think it's foolish to ignore ADP altogether. And this year, ADP is especially weird, especially, um, because of the pandemic and the shortened season previously. Um, and so I just feel like my, my typical strategy is all discombobulated. There's a lot of the same kind of patterns we see throughout ADP and there's, a lot of recency bias there too, but um, kind of my my typical strategy of uh, only grabbing a couple of aces and um, loading up on hitters is becoming more exacerbated this year. And I feel like uh, I'm I'm being forced to kind of adhere to what everyone else is doing, <clears throat> or not not adhere but conform, which is taking a lot of good pitching early. It's getting all pushed up. Um, so I'm, I'm kind of trying to adapt to that and see if it, if it works by, uh, letting the tide pull me in or to try to fight the tide out. Um, and so I, I'm trying both ways this, this preseason and I, I have yet to decide which I've, I've liked better, but I feel more comfortable, um, not spending too much on pitching, which is what everyone's doing. So I don't know. I don't know. I'm kind of in the same boat as you are in that i said to myself, I'm going to have to go for pitching earlier than I'm comfortable doing it because there won't be any if I don't. And uh, and that turned out to be a problem. And then I messed it up with an auto-pick nightmare that I had in TGFBI where I didn't realize auto-draft was turned on. And I just used the queue to stack up guys that I might be interested in. And I ended up with Eddie Rosario in the fifth round. was like a ninth-round outfielder because it, it auto-picked. And I wanted to get my second starter there. I didn't, so... You know, you roll with the punches, and now I, I just de-emphasize pitching altogether, and I'm scrambling around at the end of the draft trying to find pitching, and I'm, I think I'm doing okay, but I guess we will see it uh, as we go along. Uh, let's talk about your uh, your main claim to fame in the fantasy baseball area. You've been at the forefront of applying data to fantasy baseball purposes. And one of the last times we spoke here at Baseball HQ Radio, you had developed a more refined ERA estimator. And when we were talking at that time, you mentioned there could be some usefulness in an estimator that was built on the foundation of individual pitches and pitch quality. How much progress has there been on that front? Well, personally, I haven't made any progress on that because uh, it's uh, it's a bit daunting. And I frankly, I don't have time anymore as you might have guessed. Um, but Connor Kirkon is working on that stuff right now. He writes at six-man rotation. Um, he came up with dynamic hard hit rate and an ERA estimator called um, classified run average. And it's um, both are really quite fascinating, I think. Um, dynamic hard hit rate, especially for, for hitters. But um, CRA, his, his ERA estimator is, um, you know, it's hard to make 
substantial gains over FIP and XFIP and Sierra and the, the usual ERA estimators that we use. But his is a slight uh, improvement in terms of descriptive and predictive quality. So that's really cool. But right now, um, you know, he's been messaging me and we've been talking about it. I've been trying to <laughs> help provide some, uh, you know, just some insight where I can. But he's trying to work on a way to uh, evaluate um, pitch quality or not, I'm sorry, not pitch quality, but overall pitcher quality and and um, and uh, and run allowing capability based on the individual quality of each of a pitcher's pitches. And he's not the only one doing this. I can see, I see it getting retweeted into my Twitter timeline uh, pretty frequently now of, of different people trying to work on something like this. So I think there's going to be a lot of different efforts to, to get that to happen. But um, the initial results are really cool. And I think, you know, just fundamentally to, I don't want to get straight too far from the point, but I mean, fundamentally why this is interesting to me in the first place is, uh, you know, we are, when we look at ERA estimators, um, it's focused a lot on what actually happened, the the outcome of specifically of a plate appearance. Um, the plate appearance being, you know, it'll end up with a strikeout or a walk or, uh, you know, if you're looking at FIP, they look at home runs, or if you're looking at XFIP, they're concerned with fly balls. Um, it's kind of a narrow scope of, of outcomes, but strictly only the outcomes that happen at the end of plate appearances. And, and there's all these pitches in the interim that are happening to get strikes, to get balls. And, you know, those are all in, in and of themselves different outcomes. They're just not the outcomes that uh, affect a baseball game uh, as substantively as uh, as a strikeout or a walk does. So it's these pitches that end the plate appearances. So you're really only counting for 25% of, of all pitches when you're when you're looking at these these plate appearance outcomes. And so looking at pitch quality is really cool because you're you're putting some effort into trying to capture the value of those remaining 75% or so pitches that are kind of uh, inadvertently being ignored by looking at only uh, the end of plate appearances. And I, I think that's a really strong way of, of understanding uh, the true talent of a pitcher because at the end of the day like we're just we're all we want to do is try to figure out uh, a player's measurable talent and looking at individual pitch quality is kind of just getting even more granular at that and and kind of getting more to the core and the genesis of where pitchers uh get their skills from and, and where these outcomes manifest from in the first place that brings me to a kind of meta question we have available to us. You mentioned the word granular, and and we are getting increasingly granular in the information that is available to us. At what point, Alex, do you think, if any, does the precision of the data get us so far towards the margins that it stops helping us actually figure out which players should interest us or not? <laughs> it's funny that you asked that because I... Um... I've I've kind of been saying this more recently that I, I feel like Statcast is making me worse at fantasy baseball, which obviously is ironic, <clears throat> especially given how much time I spend with Statcast data. Um, and obviously, Statcast data provides a lot of interesting insights. There's so much more, so many more ways to to measure player performance for for both pitchers and hitters. Um, just the the level of, of granularity is incredible and we are we are um we are 
making gains on every front in terms of how we're evaluating people. But I think also it's kind of, I'm, I'm, we're losing the forest for the trees sometimes. And we're, we, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to drag anyone for doing things a certain way, but there's a lot of, you know, reductive takes based on uh, stat cast percentiles. I'm sure you've seen that in your timeline where people will take a screenshot of the percentiles on a, uh, on a player's uh, stat cast page. And, and it's kind of just these, if no one's seen them, there's these little sliders that are on, uh, you know, for like 10 or 12 different metrics um, from zero to 100 from blue to red um, people talking about how red or how blue a, a guy's stat cast page is. And I think, um, you know, so, some decisions about a guy's inherent talent or quality are being made based on these kinds of takes alone. And, um, and there's so many different metrics that we can use now because there's so much data that these metrics are all providing conflicting accounts of what's happening in terms of he's hitting the ball hard, but he's not getting... Uh, good outcomes, but maybe those good outcomes aren't valid because he also uh, doesn't hit the ball at good angles. But is this a reliable thing to count on from year to year? And it, it's kind of this like circular logic that we're just chasing our tail a little bit. And it uh, and I find myself when I when I sit down to evaluate a player, I don't know where to start anymore. <laughs> I feel like I have to start with something that I've worked on myself or whatever the the new. Uh, most cutting edge thing is and i and i think sometimes we forget that some of the classic ways that we used to evaluate players <clears throat> using era estimators or even just looking at disparities in babip batting average on balls in play one of those those old classics of the sabermetric era before statcast uh, are still really valuable and totally valid ways of of just identifying guys who might regress to the mean or or break out or whatever you know there's there's still all these old quote old fashioned ways of doing things that are that are perfectly legitimate and and still plenty capable of of making you a a good fantasy baseball player without stack cast so i'm i'm trying to like reground myself in that and not get too lost and and caught up in the stack cast stuff and and find myself doing the reductive thing that i see other people doing as well um and it's it's challenging because there's 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 so much to consider now i feel like it's information overload it is information overload. It's a good way to put it. But also, you know, when I was in university, I was an art student, but we had to take a natural science, they called it. So I took astronomy and I used to do pretty well in the labs. But every single time I did a lab, my professor would mark in the margins significant figures because I was estimating, you know, the distance to the nearest star to meters rather than to light years kind of a situation. And when I look at some of the commentary I see, especially on Twitter, I get a kind of feeling that people don't understand that 98.7 miles an hour exit velocity is not really that different from 98.6 or 98.9, you know, and I, th I think that there's, we're, what we're doing is we're creating this illusion of precision that isn't really there because these are human beings swinging a bat and a ball. And, uh, I read somewhere recently, even the, the, uh, velocity measuring systems have some difficulty depending on what angle the ball was traveling at through the field of its view and these kind of things. Are we just over, -pre over precisioning things at the risk of using a noun as a verb? Uh, yeah, I think so a little bit. And, and that's a, that's one of those things where it's like, I, I, I hate to right. you just said it, but I, I hate to be the guy who like chimes in and says, well, 
we're never even considering the fact that there could be measurement errors too, <laughs> um, which would be, which would create a lot of issues. And, um, you know, over the, over the grand scheme of things over, over hundreds or, or thousands of measurements per, per player, um, you know, you'd think that these <clears throat> measurement issues would, would resolve themselves and I'm sure they do, but there's just still right. There's, you know, I think if we're, if you're trying to split hairs between someone who's max EV exit velocity, excuse me, is, is 90 versus someone who's 91 or someone's max exit velocity who's 106 versus 104 you know these things are great two mile per hour two two miles per hour is a tangible difference but at the same time you still need to take account of how often he's coming close to his max you know just because his max is lower does not mean he's hitting the ball hard less frequently um we still need to take account of bat skills um a lot of these guys who have kind of lower um, exit velocities and max exit velocities. Um, I'm trying to think of elite guys like uh, like Alex Bregman and Jose Ramirez and even Mookie Betts. Um, these are guys with elite bat control who can kind of put the ball wherever they want kind of thing and make contact very frequently. And, and the fact that they have lower, uh, you know, uh, power numbers is one, not surprising, something that we would have already kind of known, but maybe not overanalyzed in the advent of Statcast, and two, um, something that they can uh, still optimize based on the way that they put the ball into play, and that's a lot of you know pulling the ball down the left field line. And there's nothing wrong with that. You know, a cheap home run is a is a home run nonetheless. And if you're gonna if someone's gonna give you a cheap home run, you take the cheap home run. So I'm not saying that that's the only way that they succeed, but that's the way a lot of guys succeed. Gavon Biggio too. So over precisioning is a is not a good word, but also at the same time, a great way of describing it because I do think we're attributing too much value to uh, very precise um, measurements and estimates. And again, I, I find that a lot of these things can be in conflict with one another. Do you think that the point of the applicability of the added precision might be different for people who are playing in daily formats versus the season-long formats? Because you, you know the daily format depends so much on pitcher versus hitter and you're looking at the likelihoods of things happening in a single game or four plate appearances or you know 28 batters faced or whatever the case might be and I wonder if the precision there again may be illusory but if it could be applied more profitably in that scenario where you can take a look at how did pitcher A fare against hitter X or maybe a little bit larger how did a hitter like hitter X fair against a pitcher like pitcher A. Yeah, I think I think actually Stackhouse has probably been a huge boon for um for DFS. I think having that kind of granularity is really interesting because one of the prevailing problems that I've seen in splits analysis and and especially in like batter versus pitcher analysis, um, which are always small samples and people like to ridicule any kind of like Andrew McCutcheon versus Shane Bieber kind of analysis because those samples are always really silly. It's always like he was two for 12, you know, that you can't make anything of that. But I think having, uh, having stat cast data, having granular pitch data, uh, especially like the pitch ERA quality or the pitch ERA estimators and the pitch quality stuff, I think would be really interesting because from a DFS standpoint, you can't make anything of, of batter versus pitcher splits. And a lot of time, even just platoon splits for hitters who are facing lefties or righties or whatever. But I think, if you're trying to figure out what kinds of fastballs he's good at hitting or what kind of curveballs he's good at hitting and and then what kind of fastball or curveball that pitcher is throwing and and uh you know i th- i think uh i think 
again, getting down to kind of like per pitch performance for players gives us larger samples to evaluate, gives us a better idea of the the types of performance you can see between two players in in a in a matchup at the plate. Um, I, I think that's probably like the biggest way that uh, Statcast has been able to help us. And I, I don't do DFS, and I, I you know Derek Cardi, who's a DFS person and who does the bat projections, he would probably be the best person to ask about that and attest to it. But um, I would guess that if he had to attest to anything, that using Statcast has made his DFS projections significantly more better than um, than just annual projections that we use year to year. And I think you can even see that when you look at like his the bat projections for the for the year compared to like a classic steamer or zips they all look the same <laughs> and and derek's using statcast data and i think the others might be using some of that too but at the same time you're the again and i this is something that i harp on frequently the gains that we're seeing from statcast are significant but they are not huge in terms of where we were before statcast it's just kind of just kind of how it is there's a lot of interesting stuff being done with the pitch quality and stuff but in the grand scheme of things it's not explaining some of those hidden corners of baseball um, that, uh, as well as maybe not as we thought, but just there's just still a lot of hidden corners of baseball that um, that StatCast does not adequately help us explain yet. Um, we might get there. There's a lot of interesting data coming out. And I know that they have like 100 cameras on each stadium. Um, so we'll, we'll eventually learn more. But um, yeah, it's... Uh, Right, I, I rambled again, but uh, I think DFS has, has has probably benefited more from from Statcast than season long players. You put up a pitch leaderboard for anyone to access on Tableau. Uh, it's a platform for stories and visual representation of in depth data analytics, and not just about baseball. What is your pitcher leaderboard, and how does it work? So the pitch leaderboard was just kind of a. It was something that I did not intend to necessarily make ever in the first place. And then after I did, I didn't necessarily intend to make it public. And, uh, you know, a small part of me as like a competitive uh, fantasy baseball player will always kick myself a little bit for doing that. Cause I think I would have had a, uh, a pretty big edge if I just kept that to myself. Um, but it's fine because I'm, I'm all about helping people. I'm not the best fantasy baseball player in the world to begin with. And I, I enjoy watching people, uh, enjoy the pitch leaderboard. The pitch leaderboard is um, basically, uh, well, uh, it still exists, but uh, I think maybe more, it was more prominent earlier, especially before StatCast. Um, Baseball Prospectus has its own pitch leaderboard for pitch FX data, um, uh, and kind of pitch FX is like the you know the data that everyone used before StatCast, um, and they had a pitch leaderboard that was effectively the same thing. It just had a lot less functionality, and that was the first time that I, I kind of had that idea where it, I mean it's not even my idea, frankly. I'm I'm giving credit to Baseball Prospectus for um, kind of providing the the impetus and the the inspiration for me doing something like they did, but with StatCast data. It's just that the interface of their leaderboard was never very good. It's always very slow. Uh, wasn't very flexible in terms of what you could do with sorting and and cross cutting and and just it was just slow to load and frankly mine is slow to load too sometimes. But um, I first found that because I was trying to understand uh, what made a good slider specifically. I was writing about Kevin Gossman uh, in 2017, I think. And uh, if anyone's well. Everyone's in on Gossman this year, but we've all had a love-hate 
relationship with Gosman for about half a decade. And in 2017, he had a really bad first two months, he had something like a 6.75 ERA. And then the last four months of the season, he posted like a 3.3 ERA. Uh, and it coincided with him ramping up his slider usage. And his slider had like a 19% swinging strike rate. And I was like, I was just astonished by that. I, I thought that was an incredibly good pitch. I, But I, I had no way of validating that because I, I had never heard anyone talk about what the league average swinging strike rate was for sliders um, or for fastballs or for any pitches for that matter. I just never heard about uh, pitch-specific benchmarks being discussed in that way. And I, I didn't really have any good way of of finding that information. So I scraped all the data from baseball prospectus's leaderboard and I found it out for myself. Uh, when I did that, I found out that the slider swinging strike rate for the league was 17%. So I found out that Gossman's slider isn't actually that good in, in 2017. Um, above average, but not, not elite or anything. Um, but after using the pitch effect stuff, it, it just kind of inspired me to use StatCast instead. And so I basically went about building all of this uh, this this leaderboard in the in the style of Fangraphs, but with Statcast data, um, and it basically just has every pitch thrown by every pitcher, and all of the traditional metri- metrics that or traditional and advanced metrics that you would normally see, so like batting average, on base percentage, slugging, strikeouts, walks, but also oh, and then like plate discipline, like, uh, zone rate, contact rate, swinging strike rate, uh, uh, called strike rate. Um, pitcher list has a metric called a CSW, which is called strikes plus whiffs. Um, So just all these different metrics and then newer metrics like exit velocity, um, barrel rate, launch angle. And this can all be viewed from the pitcher level, the hitter level, and then by pitch. You could say Shane Bieber's slider has such and such and you Darvish's cutter has such and such. And you can compare all of these all of these pitches in one spot. <clears throat> and it just kind of makes using StatCast data easier because the StatCast search query is uh, it is powerful but limited in in how you can view things and you can really only like search one metric at a time and it is just kind of laborious to, to do that. And this it, using this, you can just view a dozen or more metrics all at once side by side and it just kind of makes player evaluation a bit easier so um yeah i i'm happy and proud to be known for that at this point it's not ever what i expected um but i'm glad people are finding utility and using it alex how can the pitch leaderboard help fantasy players make better choices so i think um it's really good for um excuse me for um, again, for seeing for seeing a bunch of metrics on one place for a certain pitch, as opposed to just trying to chip away at at at, at viewing one metric at a time. So, like if you're using the Statcast query, um, you know you could you could look at swinging strike rate or or barrel rate, but you can only do you could only do that, and then you have to search the next thing, and um, it, it just kind of becomes a cumbersome process. Um, you can see a lot of this information that's similar on like. Uh, Fangraphs player pages, uh, and they have a lot of that stuff already there, but you can only view it for one pitcher at a time because it's on his player page. Uh, whereas for the leaderboard, you can uh, view all of these players side by side. So if you wanted to view uh, three player, like th- you want you want to compare uh, Shane Bieber's slider to 
Jacob deGrom's slider to you Darvish's slider side by side, and you want to use that as a tiebreaker for them for whatever reason, you could do that. You could you could just filter on those three specific pitches, uh, compare all of their metrics side by side, and say this is the one that's best. Um, I think uh, probably my favorite page is just the profile page that I created, and that is just a, a page that uh, drops all of the pitches thrown by a single pitcher into one place and just shows the usage metrics, uh, the performance metrics for each pitch. And then there's a bunch of splits um, if you want to use it that way. And I just think, uh, you know, it just depending on how you want to use it, if you want to try to figure out what percentile swinging strike rate so-and-so's pitch has or or what the the weighted on-base average on contact is for that pitch or even the expected WOBA, uh, for that pitch, uh, and, and sort them, you can sort it by all pitches or just sliders or just fastballs. Um, and, and really kind of, it provides context. I guess maybe that's where I'm getting all this or getting where, where I'm going with all this is it, is it provides context for performance because I think prior to having a tool like this, um, it was hard to say like, uh, you know, a 19% swinging strike rate sounds elite, but how does that rank, um, compared with other sliders? Well, yeah, it's above average, but it's not elite. And and we kind of have this better context to evaluate player performance and then also to understand uh, how uh, player performance uh, might be considered uh, unreliable or, or unsustainable moving forward because we can see how frequently pitchers have performed at such elite or uh, perhaps whatever the opposite of elite um, levels are. It sounds like it would be really important as a user to know what questions to ask. Uh, the example you offered with the who has the best slider might not be the like the optimal question to ask if you're trying to decide between uh, or from among three elite level pitchers or even three whatever the opposite of elite level pitchers are down at the bottom of your draft. If you're you know looking at the filling out your twenty third spot and you have you know three sort of run of the mill pitchers or relievers or whatever. Uh, the the right question to ask would be as important as the answer you get. Yeah, and I think I think um, you know I, I think a lot of the the questions that people end up having are not about specific players, but they're it's more about a curiosity of like I'm going to sort by swinging strike rate. I'm going to see what pitches show up, and you end up finding a pitcher who maybe you didn't think about who has a really high swinging strike rate on one or more of his pitches, or you you sort it by uh, ground ball rate, or you sort it by hard hit rate. And you see pitchers pop up again who you may not have expected to pop up and it kind of causes you to look into them more deeply and maybe you come away saying, well, yeah, that one pitch is really good, but everything else else is really bad, but at least it got you to look into him or to maybe, you know, maybe you end up finding a sleeper from it. And I think um, I've, (laughs) I've definitely done that. Um, with my own tool. And I think a lot of other people have done that as well, but I think um, just people love, people love leaderboards and rankings. And I think when they, when they go to the leaderboard, they end up doing something like that where they'll, they'll, they'll pick all four seam fastballs and say, okay, who's got the the four seam fastball with the highest swinging strike rate or the, or the best CSW rate. And then maybe look for sleepers or even use that to look for aces that they end up fading because they're like well maybe he's not actually a true ace based on some of the metrics that we're looking at so i think that's kind of the 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 way that more curious people end up using it they they don't really go in with a uh, a research question about a certain player more of like a research question about who what player might i find if i if i uh pull on this thread uh and, and tug it loose 
Plus, it's just fun to pull threads and tug them loose sometimes. If you've got not, nothing better to do for half an hour, just doink around with the tool and you'd be surprised what rabbit holes you go down. It's like in the old days of the internet or, uh, you know, when baseball reference first really got a whole bunch of data collated at one time. A lot of people like me and like you, I guess, although I'm a little older than you, found that you you click on Frank Robinson and you find yourself 45 minutes later looking at, uh, you know, s- some guy from 100 years ago or some guy from last week. And, and it's amazing how the tool becomes its own its own reason for for uh, for searching. So that's pretty interesting as well. Uh, this is going back a while, Alex, but at Rotographs you had an article arguing that as useful as max exit velocity is to describe or, or predict hitter power, it's not the or even a superior indicator of power. What's the difference between those two things and why do you say that? So I, <clears throat> I've i done research on this already and others have too. Um, if you, you look at which metrics correlate best to uh, same year performance and future year performance, um, like barrel rate is probably the best one in both terms. Um, I think uh, X expected WOBA or xwoba um, is also up there, and then maybe like uh, like average EV, it might be above max EV. So we already know that maximum exit velocity is not um, the most superior metric for hitter power, and that's because it's truly just one ball in play. If you're if you're looking at a player who plays for six months, you're isolating one specific event in which he hit the ball as hard as he possibly could in a given year. So it's not surprising, I guess, if we think about it intuitively that uh, a lone event could have more predictive power um, than 500 or 600 events um, compiled together. Uh, and that's because the maximum doesn't really give us a good a good idea of, again, I, I kind of alluded to this, but the, the, the distribution of, of what those exit velocities during the year look like. You could have one really hard hit, um, but if you make inconsistent contact you're maybe not tapping into that power as frequently as you should be, and your maximum is misleading. With that said, uh, I I was just curious to know at what point players can typically be expected to hit their maximum EV, because while it's inferior to a lot of other metrics, it would be interesting because we, we always struggle with this notion of when metrics become reliable or when they become stable. We're always like, well, it's only one month of playing, uh, is his BABIP reliable yet? Is his strikeout rate reliable yet? Is his barrel rate reliable yet? I don't know if his barrel rate re- is reliable yet, but I wanted to see if maybe if if Max EV became reliable more quickly because it's just one ball in play. And I think I found that, yes, it does. Like You have 20% of players, I think, uh, hitting their max EV in the first week of the season and, and 80% of their... And 80% of players hitting their max EV by the end of the first month, it, assuming that they're all playing uh, and they're all healthy, obviously. So, like, uh, you know, if, if if every single hitter was was healthy and playing um, in April, you'd th- you'd see about 80% of them, I think, um, have already hit their maximum EV for the year. Um, so that's really interesting because, uh, you know, again, we we a lot of times we are wondering at that point, is this performance even real? Can we rely on the performance that we've seen so far? And if you look at max EV and you see a guy improve his max EV from the previous year by two or three miles per hour early in the season, again, 
max EV is not the best indicator of overall power, but someone who improves their maximum EV by three miles per hour probably means that they've uh, improved their overall outlook of how well they're hitting the ball and the possible power that they might hit for. Because even if it's worse, it's still a good indicator of what they're capable of doing. So um, I would be interested to see if anyone uses that for the coming season. I'll probably forget to because I'm so scatterbrained. But, you know, it, it, when when May rolls around, it'd be really interesting to see which players have, have improved their maximum exit velocity, um, maybe which ones have seen a substantial decrease. It doesn't necessarily mean that they've reached their maximum EV yet, and that's kind of the tricky part is you don't know which 80% of the hitters did it. You know, it's just kind of a guessing game, but it's just kind of a, a, a guesstimate or or, or, a, or or an educated guess of who those players might be. Um, but yeah, it's uh, it's it's kind of just another tool in the in the tool belt. And I think people were already using maximum EV, but I just maybe maybe they weren't using it in the way that I had proposed here, which is that it could be a stand-in for uh, other metrics that have not stabilized early in the season. So if I'm reading you correctly, then if you saw a player who had a substantial change rather than an increase necessarily, but a substantive change in his exit velocity in month one, you might expect the average exit velocity over the rest of the year to be down in some proportion to it? Yeah, I think so. And and of course, that's always, you know, that that you could be proven wrong, but it, we're always just making bets, basically. You know, this is just uh, an elaborate uh, game of playing the stock market, if we want to view it that way. And so, you know, if you if you with with the information that you had, if I saw like, uh, you know, I don't want to use Nelson Cruz because I love Nelson Cruz as my my example. But, you know, he's 40 years old. And I think if you saw at the end of April that his maximum EV had decreased by three or four miles per hour, I would say, yeah, uh, that's that's alarming. And, you know, I, I think maybe in any other season we'd say, you know, he's just off to a slow start. Um, it's a long season, et cetera, prescribing narratives to it. Um, and, and it's possible that maybe he he is off to a slow start and he does reach his maximum EV in a later month. But I would I would interpret that as being alarming and to expect yes proportional decreases in performance across the board just based on that one metric alone not again not making it reductive because i'm trying to avoid being reductive but um sometimes we have to make mental shortcuts and decisions based on incomplete data early in the season that's one of the most difficult parts of fantasy baseball is making those decisions early on yeah and unfortunately that's when you want to make good decisions most because You've got the replacement guy for a longer run of time than if you replace him in June or July or something like that when those statistics are probably more stable but less impactful on your overall outcome. Uh, at Tableau in your folder, you also have built a Park Factors interactive tool. How does that work? Most most Park Factors are based on outcomes, again. And so I, I want to get away from true outcomes, and, and true outcomes being uh, home runs and, and triples and, and doubles and singles and the things that influence the existence of a home run or a triple or a double or a single in the first place uh, are things like exit velocity and launch angle. So I wanted to make a park factors uh, tool based on some of those more intermediate inputs like excuse me, like launch angle or exit velocity, or if we're using um, kind of these aggregate 
uh, labels that Statcast applies, like uh, like barrel and 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 solid contact and flare or burner, and, and using that information to uh, compare the expected woba that Statcast has versus the actual woba that occurred, and you can see um, when you're using it um, that like hitting to the left field and right field lines has higher uh, woba than expected woba, um, and hitting to center field has lower woba than expected woba, and and maybe these are a lot of jargony words, but um, you know we we have this metric expected woba uh, and expected woba on contact. Um, that uses exit velocity and launch angle, but does not incorporate the lateral spray angle. You know, whether a hitter is pulling the ball, hitting to the opposite field, hitting to dead center. And so using this park factors tool, you can see how someone who consistently pulls the ball at a certain park might outperform their ex-woba. And that's that's an important thing to know because people are are looking at ex-woba and it and 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 interpreting that as the gospel and not considering that a player might consistently overperform or underperform based on where in the field they're hitting the ball, but also of course in what stadium they're playing. And you can see from this tool also that like play uh, hitting in, in, in Denver or in Cincinnati is going to be really good um, in terms of, of, you know, bolstering your, your batting average on balls in play or, or, or squeaking out an extra double or home run compared to somewhere like, uh, like St. Louis or or uh, Anaheim or San Francisco or something. So, um, it was just something that I, I wanted to fool around with, and I, I want to redo it sometime because I think one I broke the link, and I don't know how to get new data back in. Um, but uh, I think I just there's probably more refined ways of doing it. But it was just an interesting kind of little goof around with uh, with Stackcast data to see if it actually worked to show. Uh, these kind of substantial differences in, in how uh, ex-WOBA was kind of um, uh, uh, kind of inadequately describing player performance as it pertains to the lateral direction of a ball in play. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Alex Chamberlain from Fangraphs. And Alex, uh, I read something somewhere, and forgive me, I don't remember exactly where, but you were talking about uh, the point at which a pitch breaks relative to when the hitter has had to commit to swinging at it. And I don't remember what it was called, post-commit point break or break post-commit point or words to that effect, but uh, how is it measured and why does it matter? So it's, uh, it's this is a, a better question for Alex fast. Um, but he asked me to, to look at some data with him and it's, it's post post commit point, post commit point. Okay. So it's the break after the point at which a hitter commits to swinging. So post commit break point. Um, and there's, it's, it's, it's very much a fledgling endeavor and and we didn't really find anything substantial so i don't really have a lot to talk about here but i think they're still kind of working on it they being the folks at Statcast, um alan nathan who is the you know one of the preeminent uh uh baseball physicists um helping to figure out at what point do hitters truly pick up the spin on the ball at, at what point do they decide to swing at a pitch um and the premise here is that you know, so somewhere between the ball coming out of the pitcher's hand and, and reaching home plate, 
a pitcher or a hitter decides to swing. And Alex Fast theory was if a pitch breaks more after this point, it's probably harder to hit. And that makes sense because if a pitch starts, you know, at his eyes and that's where he decides to swing and it ends up at the bottom of the zone, that kind of movement is probably hard to reconcile. Um, the, we only have this data for 2020, so it's already a small sample. Uh, and I think just there are concerns already about how the measurements and assumptions are stacking up. And it's just, we couldn't find anything um, significant. And I, I think there's a lot of different theories as to why that might be. I think, you know, players are probably, hitters are probably pretty good at at, at picking up spin. Um, if they've seen a pitch once, they probably already know how much break that pitch is going to have from a certain pitcher. And so um, maybe the post-commit break uh, isn't as interesting as uh, the spin mirroring stuff that's starting to come up that people are talking about. And like, if there's, if there's good spin mirroring and, and you're able to make your pitches look the same um, in terms of how they're coming out of your hand, that's probably better than any amount of post-commit break because uh, that becomes more of a guessing game whereas if you know it's going to be a curve you know about where that curve is going to end up in the zone whereas if you are mistaking a, a four-seam fastball for a curve somehow um that's a huge difference and, and at that point you're going to be either swinging way under a fastball or way over a curveball so um I, I think there's probably um there's probably more to be found for that um we're we whatever it is we're probably overrating it um, but it still is a really, again, uh, speaking of threads to be tugging on, it's it's a really interesting one. And I think we're going to be learning a lot more about that in 2021. Um, but I can't say that we have any concrete uh, uh, developments on that front yet. And I, I've only really looked at a small sample of data, so I, I can't attest to that. The mirroring thing is pretty interesting. And it seems to really reward people who can do a good job of data visualization. I saw, I don't know, again, I don't remember where I saw it, but the example that was presented, it was an animated kind of a, a short GIF. But the premise was if the fastball, the four seam fastball, is thrown with perfect uh, 12 to 6 backward spin it looks an awful lot like a perfectly thrown dead overhand curve, which is, uh, 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 I'm sorry, 6 to 12 on the, uh, on the backspin and 12 to 6 on the, on the forward spin. They, to the hitter, they look remarkably similar. And they had a couple of uh, those uh, videos of guys throwing pitches in actual games and showing the same deliveries, uh, one of them going up and in and one of them going down and away from what seemed like the same point. And it's really interesting and people should look around for that kind of thing if they can find it. But you mentioned something in a Twitter response to some of this work that's being done that said the positive effects of knowing about the post commit point break would be really affected by tunneling. And, and maybe you could explain what you mean, including a brief description of what tunneling actually is. Yeah. And I think the tunneling thing relates to the spin mirroring thing too, but tunneling is <clears throat> tunneling is an ability to kind of, uh, I'm 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 not a pitching person per se, so I'm, I'll probably explain this not as adequately as I could. But uh, think of a tunnel, <laughs> uh, and and uh, you want uh, I guess the idea is to have one or more of your pitches travel kind of along the same path, uh, flight path for as long as possible, so that they uh, effectively resemble one another <laughs> for as long as possible before they break toward the plate. So if you're able to 
um, throw your fastball and your curve and your slider uh, and your changeup and whatever uh, along this kind of identical tunnel out of your hand and they follow the same flight path for 20, 30 feet or whatever before breaking, it becomes harder for the hitter to pick up um, because they all look the same out of your hands. Whereas like, this isn't a good example because Clayton Curveball or Clayton Kershaw's curveball is elite and it's iconic, frankly. But like his curveball is this loopy twelve to six thing, and it doesn't really look anything like his fastball coming out of his hand. Like you could see his fastball come straight at you, and his curveball is a rainbow uh, that goes to home plate. And so that's not tunneling. That doesn't make his curve bad because he's not tunneling. But that's just not a good example of tunneling because they do not follow the same flight path. Whereas if you were throwing uh, a two seamer. Uh, and then a followed by a slider, those would be good, two good pitches to have follow the same flight path for you know, 20, 30, 40 feet towards home plate before they break into opposite directions toward the toward opposite sides of the plate. So um, that's kind of the premise behind tunneling. And uh, you can see how that uh, coupled with spin mirroring or even affected by spin mirroring, like I don't know how these things relate to one another. They might be causal, they might be causal, they might be just purely correlative but you know tunneling combined with spin mirroring combined with uh you know but but combined with uh replicating your your release point like all these things with with consistency and making picking up your pitches as hard as possible i can see that being a a really it's something obviously we've been trying to quantify for a long time but having Statcast data now i think it's going to be much easier for people to uh really nail that down yeah, you mentioned release point. Uh, I've seen some, again, visualizations of data that show that when a pitcher gets his release points just to be in a tighter bunch than they than they have been in the past, he tends to become a more effective pitcher just by not having gigantic differences between the delivery point for various pitches. Obviously, if you if you go to the real extreme, you have somebody who comes dead over the top to throw his his curveball and dead from the side sidearm to throw his fastball. You're the, as a hitter, you're not going to be too badly fooled by those two pitches relative to each other. So I think that's something as well that, that we can consider. And then the tunnel kind of builds off that release point. If it doesn't start in a similar release point, it can't tunnel really. Right. Earlier this month, you sent out a Twitter post uh, talking about how great it is to be the acting president of the Josh Rojas <laughs> fan club. What did you mean by that? And why is it so uh, great to have such an exalted office? Uh, so, uh, you know, I, I just, uh, of course, it's tongue in cheek. Um, but I, I'm, a, I'm very enthusiastic about Josh Rojas. Um, he doesn't have a lot of people who are enthusiastic along with me, which creates, you know, creates a position... Uh, for me to establish a fan club and then subsequently be president of it, um, or at least acting president. Um, but uh, yeah, so he he had one of the best minor league se- seasons uh, in 2019 um, among hitters, and, and that's you know that's interesting. There's a lot of really good names up there. Arozarena was up there, um, you know, a few spots below him, if if, if for all intents and purposes. Um, and you know, Arozarena is uh, a top. 60 or 75 pick this year um i'm trying to think of who else is on there i mean it, truly big names in the prospect world dalton Farshow um was up there probably had a top 10 minor league hitting season but josh rojas i would argue had the best of anyone it, it came with power it came with speed it came with uh exceptional plate discipline and contact skills um and i went really in on him in in 2020 
uh, hoping that he would play kind of a, a utility role, um, especially when he got traded from Houston to the Diamondbacks. Uh, but the Diamondbacks have had enough depth where they didn't need him. And then also he had just an absolutely miserable cup of tea. Um, it's starting to look like he might be in the mix for a utility role with them. He's he's let off like four times this week. I think he started every game. Um, it's it's they're either you know if he's not going to start or he's not going to be uh, you know in some kind of like every other day utility role. They're giving him a really hard look. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, I don't want to show my hand. I really want him in in TGFBI. Um, I'm going to definitely grab him in Razzlam if I can. Um, he's the kind of guy who might, he might do something like 15 homers, 20 steals, 270 average. Um, and, you know, that's not like super elite or anything, um, but it, it would probably make him a top 100 player if he played every day. And even if he only did a fraction of that, even if he in part-time duty did 10 home runs, 10 steals, 260 average, it's still a great pickup. Uh, for basically pennies in your draft. So he's someone that I'm watching very eagerly. Um, and and the, the early returns in spring training have been promising. So um, it's, a bit, it's a good day to be uh, uh, the, the acting president of the, the JRFC right now. <laughs> you should get T-shirts made. You also posted on Twitter a request to sites that manage drafts to upgrade their queue technology, and to be clear, I'm not referring to the tech guy in James Bond movies, but to the queue that we all create to line up our picks coming down the road. And the problem is, if you want to be sure to get a starting pitcher, you have to put as many starting pitchers in your queue at the top as there are slots to your next pick. But if you get one right away, then you might end up getting two before you can uh, turn the queue off. Or you know, there are all kinds of problems. What suggestions did you make, and and uh, how do you think they're going over? <laughs> I, uh, I I made my, my one suggestion was just like, you know, I, I think, especially just for me, I, for most people, it's not an issue, but I live in Hawaii, which, you know, I can't complain about. Uh, but in terms of doing a slow draft, usually the clock starts at like 2 a.m. my time or something. So there's always a risk that I could uh, auto before I wake up. And so just for me, like, it would be nice if I forgot to set my queue, which I've done before, um, or at least to rearrange it. Um, before I go to bed, um, to to be able to say I do not want this hitter or pitcher whatsoever, regardless of what happens. But some other people commented and made really good points. I think one was from, uh, one was Doug Dennis, I think, also of BHQ, um, and I really like this one. And uh, it was something like um, like either or ca capacity or ca capability or or something like that, um, in which you would say. Um, you know, depending on uh, what players have been drafted previously, I want to draft a pitcher next, but I'm okay with being any one of these three. And then once you draft them, remove the other two from my queue. Like I don't necessarily want a pitcher next kind of thing. So um, just, just kind of more, I guess it would be considered logic functions and to have logic functions built into the queue to say, if the guy before me, uh, took a pitcher, I want to take a hitter here. Or if the guy before me took a hitter, I want to take a pitcher here. Or uh, if all these third basemen get depleted from my queue, make sure that you prioritize this third baseman from lower down in my queue so I don't miss out. Something like that. Um, so I think there's just better ways to do it beyond just um, beyond just making a list, especially for someone like me who might go to bed um, 
<laughs> uh, and then 20 picks might pass, and I wake up and my queue has been depleted, and, and suddenly the guy at the top of my queue is a pitcher that I was looking at, but maybe in in four rounds. You know, I don't, I don't want to hop ADP that much when I can take someone else that I want. Um, so there, I think there's just different ways for for websites to give us a little more uh, power over that. Um, especially if it's not a live draft. Like in a live draft, I don't think you need that. I think you're you're much more active in what's going on. But this, the the whole point of a slow draft is to kind of just uh, be able to go about your day or to at least sleep uh, and not have to wake up before dawn to to make sure that you don't auto. Um, so yeah, there's a lot of good ideas floated around, and presumably none of them will will be implemented. It's probably too much work. Um, but some of the solutions that people said were. Um, you know, most most places have like a pre-draft ranking list that you can import and that will automatically do, you know, that will automatically put everyone in the order that you want. But again, like just because I have uh, Joe Musgrove over, say, Eddie Rosario does not mean that at a certain juncture in the draft, I want to take a pitcher instead of an outfielder. So um, that just kind of misses that nuance. And uh, again, I don't ever expect anything to happen because it's probably way too much to implement from a cost and time perspective, but uh, the first place that does it will have my business. So we'll see. You know, and it wasn't that long ago when just having a website to run your, your season for you was quite a new thing. And eventually they came up with conditional bidding for free agents uh, on a week to week basis. You could put in a bid and say, you know, this is the order of the guys I want for this particular drop. And then if I don't get any of them, move on to the next drop entirely and, and things like that. And you could order your conditions and stuff. I don't think it's out of the realm of possibility, especially as computers get easier to code, which back in the day was, you know, quite a, uh, labor-intensive challenge, but now there's a lot of uh, tools you can use to generate code a lot more quickly, so I guess we'll see if that happens. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Alex Chamberlain from Fangraphs, and Alex, uh, I always like to wrap up these discussions with some boons and banes. These are players who are going to help or hurt their teams. Let's start with some boons, guys you think will provide added value in the coming season in the American League. Who's a boon hitter for you? I was going to say someone like Nelson Cruz, who, whom I love. A good boon who is interesting, someone who's going to be quite valuable, who's being underappreciated, not underappreciated. I think he's adequately appreciated, but I think he's going to have more playing time than everyone expects is Jake Cronenworth. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of people who love him. Uh, so it's not like he's 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 for lack of 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 ad- adoration, um, but he, you know, he's. It's kind of looking like there's going to be a log jam, especially with Profar and uh, Kim and no DH. I think this is a situation where the cream rises to the top. He looks. The situation is so similar to uh, to uh, Jeff McNeil. Uh, the the players themselves, they're they're spitting images of each other. Um, Jeff McNeil in 2019 was the guy who was being drafted outside the top 200. He was not guaranteed a starting role. He was going to be kind of a utility guy. Um, big contact first guy with some power and speed exactly what Cronenworth is and McNeil ended up forcing their hand because McNeil was so good um and that's something that he was he was good in the minors too like this is something that I expected he was one of my big breakout guys for uh 2019 and 2020 and Cronenworth looks exactly the same I think the cream will rise to the top again and we're gonna see uh a McNeil redux here oh my god I just talked about an NL guy though well, anyway, so I just my NL hitter first. I'm sorry, that was really bizarre. He used to be on Tampa Bay. 
it was my excuse is he he was traded from the Rays to the Padres before the 2020 season, um, which sucks for me because I would have liked to see him on the Rays, but they kind of had a similar situation in which they were like uh, they were kind of log jammed up too. So it was it, you know there's it, there would have been similar issues, but anyway, he's he's going to have a McNeil type breakout. I think he's he's getting love, but I think he's going to outperform his ADP because he will find more playing time than people expect. Uh, American League, the actual league that we should be talking about. See, I screwed this up because I wanted to talk about Eugenio Suarez. I think he's going to be a cheat code this year. He's just being underdrafted. So he would have been my actual NL hitter if I was uh, actually paying attention and doing this correctly. My AL hitter, I really like uh, Urshela, the New York Yankees third baseman. But there's there's so many hitters that I like in the American League that I can see being... You, 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 it's funny that you said Eddie Rosario because I love Rosario at his ADP. I love uh, Michael Brantley at his ADP. There's just kind of like a consistent array of of, of outfielders who are uh, uh, consistent producers, but kind of like boring and underloved. And, and those are guys who are always turning uh, uh, profits. Uh, uh, Rosario should be a top 100 player pretty easily. I think uh, Urshela has shown some pretty fabulous skills over the last two seasons. So um, those are some guys that I like uh, in the AL. Over to the pitching mound. Uh, how about an American League Boone pitcher? So I'm going to dig deep, and this is not this is not someone who's going to be like super super profitable. Um, but I hyped him last year, and that was Randy Dobnak. Uh, and it's easy to make jokes about him because he was the Uber driver who went from the minors to uh, the playoffs, basically. Um, uh, but he's got legit stuff. He's got a, a bowling ball sinker. He's going to have a huge ground ball rate, and I think. His secondary stuff is going to play up a lot better than uh, his really meager 14% whatever strikeout rate suggests. I think he's going to be more of like a Keuchel kind of guy. And, and Keuchel, uh, you know, ha- has, a, has a Cy Young to his name, I think, or at least a, a Cy Young uh, uh, finalist nomination to his name and, and a career, uh, you know, three-something ERA. I mean, Keiko is quite good despite the lack of strikeouts. So I think um, 2021 is Dobnak's year to show that he's a Keiko kind of pitcher and, and will greatly outproduce his 500 or so ADP that he's going at right now. And in the National League, who's a Boone pitcher? So I like, uh, I like Charlie Morton to bounce back. Um, I'm glad that he decided to keep pitching. I think, uh, you know, he's getting old, but he he basically broke out when he was old. Uh, and I think a lot of his outcomes that transpired in 2020 were just bad luck based. Um, I think under the hood, everything looks pretty good. Um, you know, there's a, a little bit of velocity drop off there, but a lot of folks had velocity weirdness in, in 2020 just because of the pandemic and, and ramping up was hard. And, uh, you know, I, I it's hard for me to hold a lot of these things against people who, had bad seasons there's just so much adversity that everyone had to face so um i'm not like going out of my way to load up on him but i could easily see him returning like top 25 starter value right now he's the 46th pitcher off the board behind a handful of closers so you know i think he could um leapfrog maybe 15 pitchers in the rankings by the time the season ends as long as he can stay healthy Alex Chamberlain's Boone's Giovanni Urshela of the Yankees, Eddie Rosario of Cleveland, Jake Cronenworth of San Diego, Eugenio Suarez of Cincinnati, Randy Dobnak of Minnesota, Charlie Morton of Atlanta. Let's move on to your Banes. Once again, we'll start in the American League. Who's a Bane hitter for you? Uh, I think I am out on, and uh, I want to see if I, I'm picking the person i want to pick here to adequately represent this because i you know you pick the wrong bane and you're going to look like an idiot 
Um, I think I'm just out on Araza Reina just because I am having a hard time buying the small sample. Um, he had a really good 2019 minor league campaign. Um, you know, the 2020, the 2020 outcomes are pretty spectacular. I Bane is a bad word for it, but I'm just having a hard time uh, finding myself buying back in or buying into it. And I'd rather just, you know, if other people profit off him, that's fine. I'm not going to take the risk that early on. I will also say that Jose Altuve continues to be a Bane of mine. Um, and he was one of my big busts for last year and that hit. So I'm just going to stick to my guns. Uh, and if he proves me wrong, then great. Cause I, I think having him back as an elite hitter would be awesome. Um, but I'm going to stick to my guns and say that he continues to be a Bane. In the National League, who's a Bane hitter? So I, I'm going to go up real high. And this is this has to be taken with all the context. I don't want it to be misconstrued. But Freddie Freeman, um, he's an elite hitter. Like, don't get me wrong. Um, I just I don't see how his profile fits into a first a first round hitter's profile. Um, it's really hard to justify taking someone like him in the first round without speed. Um, obviously the batting average will probably be elite. The homers, you know, are going to be near elite. Um, but uh, I think you can find comparable players later in the draft, um, especially if you're a Vlad Guerrero believer. Like I think you could reasonably expect uh, uh, Freeman and Guerrero to put up similar numbers in 2021 if you're still um, really enthusiastic about Guerrero's prospects specifically this year. Um, so I just I just think there's a lot of uh, there's a lot more good substitutes for Freeman outside the first round than than pretty much anyone else in in that first round. And so again, he's going to be a great hitter, but I'm I he's not even on my radar uh, in terms of getting him in the first round. Um, I just think that's an overpay. Back to the mound, an American League Bane pitcher. Again, this is all ADP contextual um, because just ADP is so, so weird this year. This one, he's very contentious, but uh, Zach Plesak, I'm just having a hard time buying in on. Um, I don't doubt that there's skills there. He just feels like a classic trap play um, in terms of what we've seen in previous years. Guys who kind of have like a nice... A uh, strong breakout in a small sample who end up crashing back down to earth. I mean, you could say that very specifically about his teammate, uh, Chevalier. Um, you can say it about uh, a myriad other pitchers, not if, not just from last year, but from from previous years. And he just kind of fits that profile for me. So I'm just going off of kind of like a gut feeling and intuition based on uh, it's almost like muscle memory at this point. But um, I, I acknowledge that there there are some interesting skills there. I just am not going to take him as uh, the 20th starting pitcher off the board or whatever. And in the National League, who's a Bane pitcher? This one's pretty easy for me, but it's Trevor Bauer. Uh, and again, uh, this is you know there are skills there, um, no, no doubt. Um, really hard for me to know what he's going to do if he's going to be using pine tar again. Uh, if he's going to be able to strike out 36% of guys on a 12, 13% swinging strike rate, I think not only in addition to whatever substance he may or may not have been using uh, to increase his spin rate by 400 RPMs, that he he overperformed anyway. And I think people are are failing to see that for the outcomes. And that's one of the, I think, one of the key threads in the in 2021 ADP to begin with is people are putting too much stock in 2020 outcomes. So, um yeah, Trevor Bauer is my bane. Um, he'll probably still be good, but I'm just not. I'm not considering him for a second in the first or second round. 
Alex Chamberlain's Baines, Randy Rosarina of Tampa, Jose Altuve of Houston, Freddie Freeman of Atlanta, Zach Plesak of Cleveland, Trevor Bauer of Los Angeles. Alex, thanks. This has been great. To remind us where listeners can keep up with Alex Chamberlain. Sure. Yeah, I'm on Twitter at Dolph Haldhagen. My, uh, you spell that uh, D-O-L-P-H-H-A-U-L-D. H-A-G-E-N. Sorry, that's the worst Twitter handle in the world. Uh, and then also, I'm, I just write at Fangraph, specifically on the Rotograph side of things, and that's the only place where I am now. And obviously, I keep up with the uh, pitch leaderboard, too. And the pitch leaderboard has its own Twitter account just so I can post updates from there and not pollute everyone's feed. That, that, uh, that uh, well, I actually don't know the handle off the top of my head. I think it's pitch underscore leader BRD uh, because they didn't give me enough letters to spell the whole thing out so pitch underscore leader brd um and that's where you can find me alex thanks a million i was expecting that this would be fun and it turned out to be exactly that and as usual very informative uh try to catch up with you again during the season yeah thanks thanks for tolerating my daughter she's the one who gives me all the good ideas anyway um but yeah thanks for having me back on it was a pleasure patrick Alex Chamberlain writes about fantasy baseball and his research discoveries at Fangraphs, and you really should look over his work at Tableau. Coming up, we have our second expert interview with Todd Zola, but right now it's time when I get to remind you that we'll be back again on Friday with another Friday News and Notes edition. Nick and Ray with the National League and American League News reports, another HQ Spotlight looking at an analyst from the site, Rob Gordon has the Minor League Minute, Alex Becky has his frequent flyer, and little old me, I have my extra innings comment. All coming up Friday on Baseball HQ Radio. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for our second feature expert interview with Todd Zola from Masters Ball, Rotowire, Sirius XM, ESPN, and all kinds of podcasts, luckily for us, including this one. Todd Zola, welcome back to the show. Really good to be back with you, PD. It's really good to have you. Uh, it's always good to have you, in fact. Uh, I want to talk with you about a couple of columns that you've had recently uh, at Rotowire in your Z Files columns. Uh, the first one having to do with the uh, advice you give to people who are doing their, what we used to call auction drafts online because of the changes in the room dynamics and so forth. And we'll get to that in a second. But I noticed that uh, several big providers of fantasy sports services have decided to sort of move away from these terminologies that have to do with ownership, like auctions. Uh, I have shares of Mike Trout, these kinds of things. Uh, for a good reason, I think it's they're trying to be sensitive to the whole idea of people being owned. Um, but what did you think when you heard about all this, and and uh, how did you respond? Sure. Well, it, it started a few years ago. I, I think people realize, or a lot of people realize, that I'm a freelancer for ESPN, and they sort of they they got us away from using ownership, own that sort of thing even before the, the auction became part of the uh, one of the things they're trying to get out of the lexicon. By we, I don't mean that just ESPN, but uh, all the major CBS, Yahoo, ESPN uh, sort of have joined together to try to be just a little bit more social aware, you know, be make sure that we're not using terms that can offend. And the key is, you know what, they may not offend me, they may not offend you, I may not agree or under, not so much understand, but I may not, you know, get, some of the things that, you know, but it doesn't matter what offends me or what I'm sensitive to. It's what may offend other people. I mean, for years, 
and this wasn't part of the part of the the missive, but I never used Clubhouse Cancer. I just my my mom passed from cancer, and I'm sure there's other people that are in similar scenarios. So I this I just found other ways to say this dude isn't a very good person in the clubhouse. There are just other ways to do it. Sure. So whether I agree with it or not, and it, to be honest, I agree with the ones that we're talking about. Then you know, uh, I just you know I do it. It, it again. It may not offend me, but I have to realize it may offend other people. And from a business point of view. You know, if you're going to lose customers, you know, I, I, I know people are going to react and how, you know, auction, everybody knows what it means. It's not offensive. No, it's not meant to be offensive to you and me. And and the times when it was offensive to other people, it wasn't purposely done. But we have to understand that there are some people that are, that, you know, that that it's true. And and there's a there's a slippery slope here, PD. I'm sure, you know, that you're going to think that you probably already thought about it hearing some of these things. Where do you draw the line? And to me, it's just, you kind of just know, and we, you know, and, and if there's any question at all, if you should say something or write something, the answer is no. Right. I mean, if you have to question it, there's your answer right there. And sure. I mean, the, you can come at me with a snowflake or whatever you want to come at me with. It's the right thing to do. And auction is one. And it's, it's, they quietly, they being CBS, ESPN and Yahoo. Uh, change it to salary cap draft, which I know is an issue because there already are salary cap drafts out there. But that wasn't my choice, folks. I'm just the messenger. So that's just something we'll have to get used to. But recently, SiriusXM uh, is joining the joining the fray. And you know how hard it is? Uh, you, you know Brian Feldman. You know how hard it is to do a, uh, a one-minute clip on him before the labor auction without saying auction. Oh, wait, I just said auction. The labor salary craft draft, without saying salary cap draft in the, in the one-minute clip, that took me several takes. And we're, we're slipping on air. So, and because it started to come on air, on, you know, specifically with the labor and now Tout Wars salary cap drafts, it was time to start getting it out there. And if I'm going to be asked to say salary cap draft and roster ship and things like that, then I want people to understand why. Yeah, my worry is whenever I'm asked about it, I'm I'm afraid I'm going to say salary crap. The salary well, <laughs> salary crap. When you're talking draft, about and... my team, when you're talking about my <laughs> team, you're probably right. But you mentioned something that I did think was interesting when I first started hearing about this was the choice of calling what used to be an auction draft a salary cap draft kind of steps on the toes of some very well-established games that are called salary cap drafts in which you you draft from a list of players with assigned salaries and you have to keep them all underneath. And even if you and I are in a league together, well, actually it's just a big, huge league, but even if you and I are in a league together, we can both own Mike Trout as long as we're willing to put him in under the number that... Or, or uh, roster Mike Trout. Yeah. <laughs> See, it, it's tough. it happens I'm all the time, it's right? it's tongue-in-cheek. Trust me. If we had a little jar and each time one of us slipped and we went to Arizona next fall, we'd be eating pretty, uh, we'd be eating pretty well. Yeah, you know, that, that's they, never been a problem for me. <laughs> <laughs> well, out of the jar. No, so... Yeah, I mean, yeah, you're talking about Diamond Challenge and, and CDM and the like. Right. So, yeah, again, I'm just a messenger. This is what was decided upon by the uh, by the ivory tower, by the powers that be. So, I mean, I guess unless we can come up with a better name and get enough traction behind it to change it, then it is what it is. 
So there's going to be a lot of salary cap drafts going on this year, uh, including, uh, I guess, the Labor National League and American League drafts were held just recently. Uh, you were in yep. those. We'll talk about those in a second. Um, Tout is coming up, of course, as well. Those are salary cap, formerly auction type of drafts as well. And you had a Z-Files story, as I mentioned, uh, talking about some tips for people who might not have had the experience of doing this online. Right. The, the whole idea of the fun of it is that you're sitting around a table, elbow to elbow and shoulder to shoulder with your competitors. There's a bit of trash talking. There's a bit of fun, actually a lot of fun if you're in a lucky league, uh, as I have been over my life, a lot of, a lot of enjoyment in the experience. And that was kind of reduced to nil in the last couple of years, because all we were doing was clicking on bid or clicking yeah. on queue or whatever the case was. But now they're starting to go into Zoom. They're trying to get either in conjunction with or parallel to the draft. There's a Zoom uh, feature, or they're just doing it on Zoom and, and doing it the old-fashioned way with somebody in the uh, on the side, keeping track of all of, all of that kind of stuff or the players. So what the first tip you had anyway was uh, don't overdo it. What did you mean? Well, I think this will ring true with a lot of our listeners because they are they love Rotolab and rightfully so, I might add. The uh, when you're bidding when you're bidding online, as you suggested, you got to move players into your queue. You got to nominate them, put in how much you're nominating, and then you have to bid. If you're not completely intimate and comfortable with both the online auction, uh, there I go. There's a buck in the jar. <laughs> the the online uh, the online site and your your tracker, Rotolab or whatever it might be, it's it, it could be tough to keep track of both. And w- people that just use Rotolab and don't even you know and do it in live setting, when you get behind, you know you're starting to scramble and who who got what, how much did you go for, who do you get, and and you're you're not paying attention to your team and to your the, the flow and what you need. You're you're trying to get caught up, so it's already hard enough if you're not used to it, just using Rotolab or something like that add in having to do the bidding on the site and it, it could become a nightmare. So the recommendation is just if you're, if you're comfortable with both, go for it. I mean, fine, but try to figure out a way to use it without at least early on until you are comfortable with both. It's just, it could be, it can be tiring and not tiring, but it could just be tedious and, and you can fall behind. So I happen to be a paper tracker People see me at these live events with my laptop, so they assume I draft off my laptop. I'm just doing customer service for people that can't get in my website during a draft. I'm, I'm drafting off paper. Yeah, a lot of uh, guys I know in those leagues have been drafting on paper for years. Uh, of course, you guys run the XFL where you're only allowed one sheet of paper on top of everything else, so you have to cram it all on there. Uh I have had the experience of uh, doing an auction at a fairly high level. It was a tout auction, and uh, geez, I said auction twice in a row. Yeah, it, it's going to happen. I mean, <laughs> we know you don't mean anything by it, but it's going to no. be tough. It's, yeah, it is going to be tough. I've had the experience of using a new software product. I used to do my own spreadsheets, and I got comfortable with them, but the updating of the of the spreadsheet every year got very tiresome, so I switched to Rotolab, and the first time I used it in that setting, it was really hard because you don't instinctively know where to click to do what, yeah. and, you, and after you know a few rounds of activity, you find yourself, there's three or four uh, players who are not on the grid that should be on the grid and you have to go and look at the at the overhead projectors uh, at the front to see what you missed it's really a nightmare and, and i think 
as more and more people get into that, I think you might be right about, you might be creating a competitive advantage for yourself by having a few sheets of paper, crossing names off of the pencil as they, as they go off the board, writing your guys down on a sheet and keeping track of your money that way. Um, the happy medium I found was I use basically sheets for drafting, but I use this little spreadsheet to keep track of my own team. I can load right. those guys in and, and, uh, it'll, it'll populate my, uh, stat results and keep track of my money most importantly. So, uh, I do do that, but I think you're right about trying to simplify things so that you can think about what you're doing rather than relying on technology to replace thinking about what you should be doing. Right. If, if, if I was writing a general, uh, you know, how to do a salary cap draft in general, one of the first pieces of advice would be keep it simple until you're used to it. So let alone adding in the remote draft room aspect of it. But the key is, and this, this is, you know, I, I know what I do, but it might not work for everybody else. You still need to be able to find the player and get, you know, I, get your bid, your bid, your bid range, right? What, what you're willing to pay for that player some of us kind of know it intuitively because that's, you know, we're looking at those numbers every day for our job, but whether it be alphabetical or in order of, of, of uh, quality, however you want to put it, or even if you just have it on a computer and you just, you're not tracking the, you know, we're doing like a rotolab type thing. All you're doing is finding the player in the number and you just control F it. You can easily get the, the number that way. Whoever just, just keeping it simple, you know, just don't, just don't come up with a, a system you think will work. Make sure that you'll be able to find the player quickly and then be able to get into the bidding at a point where, you know, you can make it competitive. I built a spreadsheet one year where I had exactly that, where you could type the player's name in and it would populate with the, yeah. all the values, all the stats and all the rest of it. What I didn't account for was typos, me thinking guy's name was spelt Frankie with a Y when it turns out it was an right. IE and Again, you can find yourself, especially in a fast-paced auction like uh, some of the experts' leagues tend to be, you can find yourself falling behind pretty quickly. And by the time you get it all figured out, the 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 guy running the event is going sold. Uh, I guess he's going to have to change that too. <laughs> uh, well, awarded or, or whatever yeah. they're going to say at, at the end of that process. And you miss out because you've been so busy trying to run the technology that you forgot to run the draft. Yeah, exactly. And... The, um, the, the truth is the online room, it, it goes slower. It, it just, go, it goes slower than when we do these live, when we do these live, they fly. It just, it just, it, the way it is, is the nominations go slower and you can the, the, the person, the person doing the count, the countdown, the countdowner can, can adjust to the room and, and go faster, go slower. But the, the machine does it, the automatic intelligence does it, you know, at a set pace. So that that is one thing is there there could be once you're used to it you might have a, a little bit more time during a nomination to actually update the previous player but having seen you know make, again that make sure you're comfortable doing it that way one other aspect of the technology bidding uh when you're doing your uh bidding online is in the room, it's sometimes tempting to go wait till that going twice and then jump in at the last minute. To, I don't understand why anybody does this, but it's supposed to demoralize your opponent or, you know, there's some behavioral economics aspect to it that I've really never cottoned onto. And frankly, I don't think it's really that big a deal. But if you're 
of a uh, of a of an inclination to try to do that you got to be aware that clicking on the thing there's sometimes a bit of latency and you can you can wait till the very last second and click bid and you're going to be too late right i'm with you too though i and there are people that that swear by the going you know coming in at, at going twice and it might work on some people but i think on it doesn't work in the rooms that you know that we're dealing with as far as these uh industry showcase type type uh, situations labor towards etc that if i you know i know what i want or know how i'm willing to go on a player and if someone comes in at, at 32 going twice i don't oh no you know 33 <laughs> uh it just it, sometimes and you know again I, in my head the way to counter that is to get the next number out before that person even finishes their last number you know you know kind of like in your face you, 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 didn't, you no you did not get me you know whatever stop yeah. that but as far as the room goes the uh the remote the 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 remote uh, room absolutely you know different different you know bandwidth different uh types of internet etc just don't mess with it don't don't get cute don't mess with it um because the it should be established beforehand what the computer says goes right or if there's someone monitoring it whatever is on their screen goes you have to have some final decision and you also have to be careful too because we're not live and oh i didn't mean to click it or i meant to go i didn't mean to go that high either either you, you're really lenient it's a it's a casual league and all right i'll roll that back okay you didn't mean to click that so we'll roll it out or if if you click you know you clicked it it's done you took the piece you took you took the hand off the piece like in chess whatever it is you took you took the hand off the piece it's done and the danger there is some of these rooms you can type your bid in and hit enter but some of the plus one, plus two, uh, plus five, I believe, and not know the fan graphs game. So if you're clicking, you know, if you want to do a jump bid and two people want to do a jump bid at the same time and it's at 10, one does 15 and you did it just a second later and it goes to 20, you may not have wanted to pay 20. So, and, and you can't, you know, you, again, you have to say if you, if you clicked it, it's done, but just be careful about that. But as well as the, trying to catch the guy off guard and getting it. And that's why you need to be comfortable because it may not even be that you're purposely trying to get the bid in just before the player is off the market. How's that? Players off the market, players <laughs> off the board, but uh, I've had more practice than you. So yeah. I, my brain, yeah, it's, 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 I'm just, I say it, it's actually, you know, so it, it may just be that you, by the time you got your number and you saw your team, Oh yes, I have an opening. Then by the time you actually get ready to bid, you, you, you might get caught. You might get caught out of it, especially if it's in the end game. And you know we're kind of jumping around here, but these are all things that have to do with the room. Some of them will automatically move the players for you to so you, you or you understand that you have an opening. But some rooms require you to do the work. And if you want to bid on a middle, and your middle has Tommy Edmond on it, and you have to move him to corner to open up the middle just so you can bid. You have to be aware of that, and that you should know that going into each room. It's obviously better if the room knows it, but that's just some programmers don't have that technology or some sources technology yet. So now that's another thing you need to do. You know, I need to get my number, make sure I have an opening. Oh no, I need to move. I need to move. Uh, you know, Gene Segura over to middle of the corner so I can get the opening to bid on him. Uh, so just yeah. do this all in advance, or else the room will go. You know. Done, done, sold. The room still says sold, so we can say what the room says and blame the room. 
I wonder if the uh, technology of the of the draft process itself ought to have a thing. You know, in snake drafts, you can preload a queue with players in order. And uh, I spoke with Alex Chamberlain earlier, and he's he has said on Twitter, it would be nice if you could build conditional bidding of some kind into your queue so that you didn't have, you want to get a first baseman, so you put six of them in a row and you happen to get both the, the guys at the top. And it would be nice if you could set it up to skip once you get a first baseman to drop all the other ones and move well, on to the next thing. The NFBC allows you to set queue by round. So you don't have to worry about that. You just set round 26, all first baseman, round 27, yeah. all second baseman, and you don't have to worry about it. They're the only, well, there's some football sites that do it. Uh, they're the only site that I know of that allows that level of, uh, you know, granularity as far as, and it's wonderful. I mean, we're doing, we're doing the TGFBI, the RAS Slam now, and, and obviously NFPC events on their, on their platform. They work really hard over there. I'm not a paid advertiser, so I'll leave it at that. I wonder if it would be possible for salary cap operators in their rooms to allow you to, instead of building a queue in order, which makes no sense, but to input how much your maximum bid is on any player you want to bid on, but you're worried that if if you do click bid again or bid plus one, it'll take you past some amount that you could just set a maximum. So if you were at 20, like if it was at 19 and you and somebody else click almost simultaneously to bump it a dollar and it takes you past 20, then you, you wouldn't get caught or especially and if it, you bid by plus fives. Here I go again. NFBC has that. I think RTS may, uh, at least there was something that said maximum. I didn't investigate it. So I think there are some rooms, but we're now talking about two of the rooms that do high stakes contests most people are, you know, you, you want your ESPN, you want your CBS, you want your Yahoo rooms. I can't speak towards those rooms to whether they allow it or not. Well, it would be good if they did. And in the meantime, you just got to, yeah. you just got to be sure that if you're going to click plus one, be ready to swallow yeah. a plus two is, is how it works, I guess. Right. But the, con the, the corollary, by the time it takes you to type your bid in and hit enter, it may already be past you. So you just have to exact. It's it's almost like price enforcing. You got to keep hitting plus one until the point where even if you get nailed, you're still okay with the plus one price. It's kind of like pricing. You know, I, first of all, I think price enforcing is, is kind of a, a false label because we never. I'm sure you ask people, and they'll say, "Well, I was price enforcing, but if I got the guy, I was okay with that." Well, then you weren't price enforcing. You just bid, right? <laughs> anyway. Yeah. I wonder if the a technique might be to just figure out what your maximum is and just enter it right as soon as the guy is taken care of off the board. And then if you don't, if you get him at your maximum, that's okay. I guess that, that way you miss out on the possibility that you might be able to get him for some amount less than what you would have been willing to. That's the jump. You know, I, I don't go to the maximum. That's a classic jump bid. We've talked about that. I've written about that where if you, if you're willing to pay 23, you type in nine, you know, it's at 11 or 12, you type in 19 which has the psychological, the nines, although that at this point, at least in the rooms we're in, is no longer a thing. But it is it is a thing in some inexperienced doctor rooms and home leagues where going from 19 to 20, 29 to 30, there's a psychological barrier. So if, I'll do that. If I have a guy at 23, I'll type 19. So now not only do I have the jump bit, I now have the, the nines in there too. And if I have to go plus one, you know, at this point, You've already, you probably had a lot of people drop out, so you don't have to worry as much about the plus ones. 
And but but yeah, and, and there were a few. There were I don't remember. It was yes, it was. It was in it was my colleague Clay Link did a couple of jump bids. You know, not even jump bids, just freeze bids. A, a different you know, they're technical terms that don't have a dictionary definition, but have just become accepted. A free a freeze nomination is is you nominate the guy at that you know the, like you're saying if you want if you have a guy for twenty five you just nominate him for twenty five the idea being if someone may have wanted to go more they just ah, they're, they're kind of flustered and by the time they decide if they want to go more it's you know it's over they don't have any of the chance so sometimes these uh, these these jump bids or your freeze bids work because a lot of times you're <clears throat> you're during the bidding process you're like I don't know do I want this guy uh, let me go back and read the forecaster clip on him. Oh, yeah, that's right. Uh, Ryan Bloomfield has a you know an up there, an upside. So, and by the you know, the, okay, now you can jump in, and it's still the player's still available. But but you know, if you just you don't have, if you don't avail the opponent the opportunity to do that, you may have a better chance of getting the guy. I would only add that in early in the draft, it's a trick you might want to try on guys you're not really that keen on uh, having. You wouldn't mind them at the price that you jump to or nominate at. But right. later in the draft is a time when you do want to try to get that technique going because in addition to all of the other considerations, what did Ryan Bloomfield say in the forecaster, uh, they, <laughs> the, the competing uh, participant also needs to be aware of what does his roster look like at the time and how much money does he have yeah. in his yeah. wallet ready to go or how many units does he have that he can uh, afford to, to bid. So right. I, I think that's a, a tactical thing you might want to think about as well. Uh, you're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt, with Todd Zola for Masters Ball, Rotowire, ESPN, Sirius XM, uh, podcasts here, there, and everywhere. Probably the uh, king of all medias, they said about Howard Stern back in the day. Uh, you're it for fantasy uh, baseball purposes, that's for sure. Uh, you had a column at Rotowire in your Z Files also about looking at and encouraging, I would say, leagues to consider changing from wins to innings pitched and from saves to solds, saves plus holds. Uh, what makes you think this is a way that the industry has to move? Everybody has to move, but it's, it's a, it was a consideration. Now, you know, in Tout Wars, we, we made a new league with innings pitched in lieu of wins, and as you say, sold, save plus holds instead of holds. That emanated from just a, a conversation where the board, uh, myself, Ron Chandler, Peter Kreutzer, Brian Walton, and Jeff Erickson, we just, you know, okay, we're done with our regular meeting. Let's, 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 let's get proactive and anticipate questions or anticipate rule changes that, you know, so that when they come in, We've already talked about it, and we don't have to wait for five people to chime in, et cetera. We do this occasionally in the meetings. And I said, you know, there's a lot of chatter on Twitter about it was specifically saves plus holds. You know, I, I wouldn't be surprised if somebody, you know, emails us and asks that we change it to saves plus holds. You know, what do we think about it? You know, is it something we need to discuss? And while we're discussing it, I said, you know, I personally, I, I'm kind of indifferent to saves plus holds. I actually don't like it. But. Man, I like I like innings pitched over wins, and I didn't. You know, I just kind of it's more conversational, and then I forget someone else. Yeah, I agree with you, and then and then kind of you know wh who which of you thought of the league? Well, the, the kind of the light bulb went off like simul five light bulbs went off at the same time. It was like, well, let's 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 not just wait to sim and ask. Let's just have a new league because we're always looking for ways to get more people into the industry. So. I've been talking about wins, uh, any pitched over wins on Twitter, and it doesn't have the traction that Solds does. 
but it just seemed like the perfect opportunity to, you know, the old two burns with one stone sort of thing, get more people into the industry. And, you know, let's, let's experiment with these new categories and you never know. I mean, you know, it'll never happen. Well, we're OBP, you know, we, we, have got the, we've got the super utility utility in the AL and NL. So we are, we will make changes even if the, uh, the industry isn't doing it as a whole. So if it turns out that the, feedback on this league was fantastic who knows maybe in the future we'll be talking about why we did this for all the tout wars i'm not saying we're going to but you know the opportunity the possibility that we do this in all the leagues is out there wife wins i mean i know the answer to this question so we don't have to go through it in depth but uh wins has definitely been more in the spotlight as far as something that needs to be changed than it has been even in years past when a lot of us thought it was just a bad idea from the jump, but it's right. really getting some momentum now. What has changed? Well, it's, it's like you said, it's always been a bad idea just because of the fluky nature of the category and, you know, does he deserve the win? It's now out there because of the, the, the different way teams are using starting pitching and, and closers and, and, and openers and primary pitchers and effectors and all the different terms. It's now, now you have sort of, it's always been there, but now you've got a, a an easier way to explain it and to convince people. It's just, be, be, you can point to what Tampa's doing, what the angels are doing and they're doing it differently with, with their opener. They just, they're doing it out of desperation where Tampa does it strategically, but you've got to, you know, you have a better argument. You it just, you don't have to rely on, uh, just, you know, well, wins is stupid. I mean, you can show what, what teams are doing. And so a lot of people went to quality starts. And for me, that's taken a step backwards, to be honest with you, right? If you, if you don't like wins, I mean, quality starts, you earned the quality start, perhaps, by pitching well. But to me, it doesn't accomplish what you wanted to do with the category. Innings pitch to me is just perfect. Be, you know, relievers that pitch two and a third innings, they're helping their baseball team. So let's help their fantasy team. Uh, pitchers like, I don't know, Kyle Hendricks is not the best example because he does strike out a few batters. But uh, Mark Burley, I'm dating myself a little bit with Mark Burley. He was a, he, no one except Lar Michaels, the late Lar Michaels, God rest his soul, uh, would, would be into Mark Burley because he didn't get any strikeouts, but he pitched innings. So he still might not be as useful as some other pitchers, but because K's is still a category, but he makes you know it would help help his his his, uh, his usefulness if innings pitch were there instead instead. So um, yeah, it just to me it made perfect sense. And this is one I don't want to get political, but I think people know the analogy. Sometimes in order to pass a bill. You know, you have to in order to get in order in order for you to get that bill passed, you need to attach this onto it. So I framed it to the group as, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll I'll be okay with saves plus holds if we add innings pitched and wins instead, as as long along with it. The name that popped into my head right away was Dallas Keuchel, uh, you know, yeah, a, a guy who yeah. piles up yeah. innings. He's actually really effective when he does it, or has been in the last uh, year or so, and doesn't get a lot of strikeouts. But there's not there's not a loss of value there to his team. I think you're exactly right about this. Moving on to the saves plus holds angle, there's a lot a lot more resistance to this, and frankly, I think it's probably because as goofy and situational as a save is, a hold is maybe even goofier. Not just that, it's, as you, I think, as you know, I, I, we've talked about it, it's not an official MLB statistic. 
And I'll write, you know, a, a certain pitcher had 32 holds and I write 10,000 words, but the only thing, I, no, he didn't. He had 31. Well, that's because you're using a different source. They're different, different people have different definitions for holds. Not that that isn't a reason. I mean, if you liked it, you could say we're using the MLB definition well, or whatever, whoever's tracking them. We're using their definition. That's kind of a straw man to use that. If that's your argument, then you need a better argument. But yeah, to me, it, it's more about, uh, there, it, the, I want to be able to, when I say project from the projecting hat, I want to, you know, have a comfortable way of projecting the stat and then you need to turn it into a ranking. And yeah, you can say that. I mean, wins, they're, they're, they're predictable. They're just more variance than the others and, and saves and holds at this point with saves and holds, it, it is now getting to be. Yes, you can kind of predict, but the variance is even wider. When the strategy is, I'm not going to worry about it on draft day because I know a, a holds guy will emerge in season. That to me, that's that's not the, that's not the strategy that I want to be playing by. It may it, I understand it. It makes sense. That's the right way to do it. But I don't want my game designed on. I'm not going to worry about it until in season, and then I'm not going to use skill. I'm going to figure out which which manager's giving which pitcher the holds, and I'm going to get him. That you know. Again, it's the right way to do it, but I don't want that to be this, the, the the right strategy. So, uh, I'm not a fan of holds. I'm not a fan of. Uh, I'm not not much of a fan of saves. But I, it's to me, it's a little bit better. Now it's getting worse because the similar way managers are managing their starting pitching, they're managing their their back into their bullpen. There are just as many. Well, actually, there are fewer saves uh, than there've been. But that that may just that sometimes that just goes in cycles. But they're they're more they're more widespread. They're distri distributed amongst more ninth inning, more I don't even know they're closing, just more pitchers, more relievers. Some of that's economical in that the good teams, well, the bad teams aren't paying closers, so the good teams are building these super bullpens. So some of it is just that they're the lesser teams have lesser closers and they're not getting the job done. Along with the fact that they're the way the game is is is, is moving, there may be fewer saves in general. But um, and the other thing, when you run whatever how you when you run your values, wherever you do it, middle relievers have always gotten the credit in a vacuum. But in draft strategy, they just never drafted that way. Partially because I'm getting a little granular here, but it's fine. Uh, valuation assumes that the player's active in your roster all year long and no one else is in that active roster spot. So the middle relievers with good ratios end up looking like they should be in an active roster. But when you manage a team, most situations you're allowed to use reserves to jump in you know, on a bad matchup and the valuation doesn't account for that. So if you were to value air quote, roster spots and not the actual pitcher, what you're expecting from this, what I expect from my sixth, seventh, and eighth roster spots on pitching and not the pitcher themselves. Then the middle relief, you know, this is assuming you stream well and you pick the right matchups. Then the middle relievers wouldn't finish as high when they're rated against the actual pitchers that were on that streaming part of your roster. So it's kind of hard to explain, but, but, but I've, so I've always kind of felt, well, Middle relievers get their due. People just don't use them properly. Then I kind of I realized that that argument is wrong. Zola's wrong because of what I just explained. I kind of figured that out this year that even though end of year values, you run them and it says 
Um, well, Devin Williams may not be the right example because he's so darn good, but there's always a middle reliever that ends up in the top 108 of a 12-team league, and he should have been on, on a roster. Well, no, because that's not there weren't just these 108 pitchers in your, on the rosters all year long. Yeah, that's an excellent point. Uh, I once thought about having a, a category for ERA in the seventh through ninth innings, which would be which would reward starters who have uh, very long outings. Plus, it would get those relievers who are in the theoretically clutch situations, but at least late situations, so they're exhibiting some uh, value to their managers in the right. actual field of, uh, of the game. The problem is when you start doing that is record keeping. You know, you have to then rely on, you know, on Roto or, or ESPN or Yahoo to invent how to track the stat. And what do you do about a guy who comes in, you know, one out into the seventh inning? Does that count as an inning? <laughs> that kind of stuff. But I think that because of the way that baseball is adjusting and actually reorienting how it's using pitchers, I think at some point, if we want to maintain a sense of uh, of faithfulness to to the on field activity, and I'm not saying that that's necessary. A lot of people don't think it one has anything to do with the other, and there's value to that proposition. But if you do want to have it sort of track along with what's going on in real baseball, I think that sooner or later somebody's going to have to figure out a relatively easy way to come up with categories that do reward these kind of really good pitchers on the staff, irrespective of their roles, because their roles are becoming ever more fluid. No, I agree. And I, you know, as far as the whole, does it have to match, does my fantasy have to match my real baseball? I'm kind of, I'm, I'm a bit in the middle, but Again, it's more about the projectability than it is about the baseball usefulness of it. I've always liked using innings pitched and instead of K's, use K per nine. But now we're – because that helps You know, the better pitchers have the higher strikeout, even though we just said there's some starters that don't get the strikeouts, but they still get the innings in this formula. But now you're in three ratios, and I think people would be object to having three ratios and – what do you then do with saves? Do you go to a four by four and make it runs produced or runs plus RBI? There's, you know, we can go down this rabbit hole forever and, and try to come up with the ideal thing. And then we get into the tout wars discussion of what's, what's our goal to, to help the industry in their leagues or to be an innovator. And, you know, and our goal is to kind of do both, which some, as you know, when, sometimes when you try to do two things, you end up doing neither of them very well. That's right. just the, uh, that's just right. the conundrum we're in. Yeah, that's exactly right. So uh, your uh, American League uh, labor draft was held just over the weekend. How did you do? I think I did okay. It's not. It's one of those teams where no, it doesn't have any sexy names. It wasn't. I don't have. A, I didn't pay for the studs, so I don't think it's going to stand out. But uh, you know, you as you know all too well, having done uh, AL Tout Wars, you you know you you can't you can't be doing mixed drafts and doing and doing TGFBI and doing NFBC draft champions and then look at an AL league and be able to understand. <laughs> you can't eyeball it. It's just a different, a different baseline. I just wanted at bats and I wanted to stay out of the drudge of the end game. I don't know how much work you've done yet to, to prepare for tout wars, but I think the end game is even more of a cesspool than normal. So I wanted to stay out of that, but I ended up, I, I misplayed the end game. I liked what I did <clears throat> and I ended up, misplaying the end game in a big way. I don't think it had to do the remote room. It just had to do with, it had a, an impulse buy, if you will. 
I like Edward Olivares, Kansas City, um, as a steel source with a b- bit of power. But apparently Kansas City doesn't like him as much because they picked up uh, Jared Dyson and Michael Taylor. So I was I'll, I wanted to get Olivares cheap in the end game, and then Michael Taylor's name came up, and I'm, I'm like, hey, wait, why don't I just get both of them? That way I'm covered because I had the spot and there wasn't really anybody else I was all all gung ho for, and so I, yeah, I, and and I ended up paying what it, what it took me to get Taylor. I didn't have enough left over to get Olivares as well, so you know, and it, I I should have just stuck with my. My initial thought just got Olivares cheap because the idea being he's going to win the job, and I just didn't have time to talk myself out of it. And that just, you know, I just didn't get the other end game players that I wanted to. So I kind of feel like uh, I misplayed the end game in that regard. But the other hand, if Michael Taylor keeps the job, I have one team with Michael Taylor, and my other, you know, umpteen teams with with uh, with Olivares are going to suffer. But at least I got Taylor in labor. Always got to see uh, see the bright side. In the overall draft, uh, I noticed when it was first going on that uh, catchers seemed to be going for pretty good, solid prices, including a guy like Mitch Garver, I think, went for 15 or $16, and that's a betting on a fairly big rebound in a situation, mm-hmm. I thought, where he might not even get, he might be like in a 50-50 split in that situation in Minnesota with Ryan Jeffers. Right. In general, people looking at the the labor AL and NL drafts. And this is this is consistent with the different rooms. And at this point, we've been together long enough that th- there's some turnover, but it's generally the same people. The NL, where prices were fairly chalk, right? They were, I mean, again, it depends on your source, but the general consensus by chalk, they were just fairly close to what was expected, whether using HQ pricing, my pricing, Rotowire, uh, you're calc- using whatever you want. The pricing was fairly, you know, within a couple of bucks of the expected number. Uh, AL, I mean, it, it's all over the place. They just, the, and this is again, it's the room as opposed to uh, the people in the room, as opposed to anything else. So if you if you looked at NL and said, well, I'm going to be able to get bargains on the upper echelon because you know they're they're not, it's going to be the same. Well, it it isn't, and it wasn't. Um, and I think catching was one of the places where. Again, there was some inflation. Of course, it left, you know, the back end of it. It 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 leaves you cheaper players. But I mean, a cheap catcher is a cheap catcher. You're not getting a bargain on a cheap catcher. You're going to get a six dollar outfielder for a dollar, even in even in labor, mixed labor. I'm sorry, AL labor. You're not going to get a six dollar catcher for a buck. No, that's for sure because of the <laughs> because of the pressure on the position and yeah. and the relative sur- uh, surplus of outfielders out there. You, I noticed you got Franchi Cordero, and and that was a fairly cheap uh, get for four spending units. Right. Well, again, it wasn't it wasn't by design. Um, I figured if I got Benintendi, I might as well get Cordero too. I mean, nah, uh, no, I. I um, I think that was my dumb joke to try to distract people. It's a lot tougher to use dumb jokes in a written chat than it is live to distract people. I found that out. Yeah. Anyway, no, it, it was just the end game and who was out there and and he at least not, you know at least at this point he's supposed to be the starter for the Red Sox and uh, you know Fenway Park fly ball it could help him. I thought I had ample batting average with Nick Madrigal to absorb some of this stuff. Um, I'm counting, you know, I, I think I said that three different times. 
So when you're using Nick Madrigal's batting average three different times to absorb somebody else, maybe maybe you overdid it a bit. I don't know, but we'll just have to see. But I mean, it wasn't any not because I'm a Red Sox fan. It's not because I expect a lot of Adicadero relative to some of the other uh, players at the time. I mean, Joel Dell went for three. Well, I mean, at least Cordero's supposed to have the job. Cedric Mullins went for three. I'm a, you know I know that uh, he's been challenged to take the job from Austin Hayes. I don't think it's happening. So relative to some of the other purchases, Jacoby Jones went for four. I just I felt it was in line with those numbers. I, I don't have the uh, – I'm not going to point to anything that makes me so high on Franchi Cadero. I wondered when I saw that you actually didn't spend any uh, 20 units on any hitter. There was one at 31, George Springer, and then a whole mess of guys in the teens. Uh, I'm guessing that's by design, but to what extent was it by design and to what extent was it the room? Well, it wasn't by it wasn't by initial design. I act, I mean, my first, even though I just said that I didn't think I was going to be able to, you know, get a bargain on some of the high priced players. I I do a thing where I I write out my fourteen spots and I put a, you know, a, a designate not a position or a player but a, a value thirty five thirty. So my first set of expectations had a thirty five and a thirty and a twenty five or whatever it was, and I just kept. Uh, when I knew I wasn't going to be able to fill those spots, just redistributing that money to other places. This is just my way of, of filling out the roster with, you know, knowing who's available, knowing what I can pay and not leaving money on the table. It, so the 20 was just a matter of things that just happened. I think a lot of that had to do with, I I knew I wasn't going to get, or I, I, or I thought I could get the players that I did where I got them. Polanco, Cesar Hernandez, Kyle Seeger. I thought I could get those guys less than 20. And I ended up moving the money over and getting a Lance Lynn. I wasn't expect. I think my my next highest pitcher after a closer was supposed to be around 15. And so I added around $11 to that spot. Uh, to, actually, I saved a few bucks because my 25 was my highest pitcher. So you can do it a couple ways. Lynn fills the highest pitcher spot and because I bought him after Ryu, but whatever you, however you want to look at it. So the, the money that I would have taken to get some of those teens into the 20s with different players, I, I like the price on Lynn and Ryu, so I got a little higher on pitching than I initially expected. I do exactly the same thing. I assign values to to slots and then distribute the money as I'm over or under on the slots, trying to be under, right. of course, as often as possible. And uh, it, you ended up with what looks very much like a spread the risk strategy in your hitting and a little more starsy scrubsy in the pitching side, which is uh, for a lot of people the opposite of how they expect to have their drafts go. Perhaps, yeah. No, I guess that's a good one. actually. Well. I don't think the pitching scrubs, PD. I'm just you know, saying it's somewhat tongue-in-cheek. Let me explain real quick. Um, if people are looking at the board, labor is unique. It's kind of pseudo-old school where you cannot simply re- uh, put a player from your active roster to your reserve and replace him with a reserve. You can – if a player is hurt or if he's on IL, there is a separate IL. If he's, uh, if he's on the minors, you can put him on your reserve. If you want to replace him and he's still active, you have to drop him. However, reserve players, players you, and this is the same with people you pick up in fab. So if you fab someone onto your roster, you can't put him on reserve. You have to release him unless he's hurt or back in the minors. Uh, but the exception is your reserves. 
they are allowed free movement from reserve to active. So a very common ploy in, in labor is to draft an injured pitcher. This way you, you effectively open up a streaming spot because you put that player on your IL. And now if I've got, uh, I've got, and this is why I'm explaining Framer Valdez. Didn't Zola know he could be out for the year? Yeah, that's why he drafted him. Because if he's not out for the year, I've got Framber Valdez at a buck. If he is out for the year, I now, now these pitchers aren't great, folks, but they're, they're reserve AL only pitchers. Uh, Jaime Barria, Danny Duffy, Granny, uh, Brian Garcia, and Martin Perez. You know, if, if Perez is facing the Orioles and I like that matchup, he's in my lineup that week. If next week Danny Duffy's facing Detroit and I like that matchup, he's in my lineup that week. Same with Barria. And if Garcia ends up closing for Detroit, you know, every few weeks I can get him in there, try to get an extra save. If I don't like any of them, I fab a guy for a buck that I do like. And the next week, if one of them have a good matchups, I put him in. So if you go through it, how could that guy draft, you know, uh, Chris, well, sales coming back, but that's a, a veteran, if you will, a veteran labor move is to do something like that. You got to know the angles. That's the thing, right? One of the yeah, things we tell yeah. a whole bunch of people when they get into fantasy baseball at first and they say, you know, what website should I use? What projection should I use? And over and over again, the advice we give is the first thing you need to do is read your league constitution and understand it thoroughly because there's a lot of benefit in that. The projections are, let's be honest, the project, you're a projector and uh, I work for a projector and they're all fairly close to each other. You know, there's outliers here and outliers there, but pretty much everybody agrees that such and such a player is worth 15 units or is going to have 26 home runs and the next guy might say 14 and 23 or whatever. But if you know your league rules, and I, I know that there's a temptation to sometimes be a bit of a lawyer and look for loopholes and ways around things, but understanding how your league works and how those kind of rostering rules work is really important to maximizing your chances of operating your roster effectively. Right. And, uh, and, you know, a little bit of commissioner advice here. You want everybody to read the rules. You really do. And they should. We're all adults. But if someone's asked you a rule, you know, so if someone asks you a rules question, be nice and answer it. Because if you're SWAT or commissioner, that's what you need to do. So that's rule number one. Rule number two is if the person incessantly asks you, and just get you so angry. Uh, C number one, it's still your job to answer the question. You want them to read the rules, but especially if it's if there's steaks in the line, if there's jelly beans in the line, you don't you don't want something decided because you know a miscommunication. You want it to be on the up and up. So it's 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 part and parcel. It's frustrating, but commissioners explain them now. You want, on the other hand, if you're in a league, don't rely on your commissioner. You know, read the rules. Ask for clarification. Don't take advantage of a benevolent commissioner. I was a benevolent commissioner for a long time. And uh, <laughs> I think one way to kind of have your cake and eat it too in that regard is if somebody phones you or emails you or something and says, what's the rule regarding whether I can move a guy on, in, on and off reserve? What I used to do is I used to say, the rule is this. It's in section four of the constitution. Oh, yeah. Please read the constitution because there's a lot, there's a lot of good things in there you should know about rather than having to just think about them in the moment. And oh, well, most guys I'll, will. Yeah. I'll do something similar because uh, no one, no one likes to talk to me over the phone. So they'll email me. So I'll copy and paste. 
from the Constitution. And I'll make sure I make sure I have the heading, you know, you know, uh, Section 10, uh, you know, eligibility, whatever it might be. So right. I'll make sure so they'll know it came from the rules. And I'll say from the rules posted, post, you know, tout, if it's, you know, tout wars, believe it or not, some touts ask me about the rules. So I'll say, you know, as as posted on the Tout Wars website, and I'll copy and paste it. And that usually gets the message across. But let's be honest, too. I mean, some sometimes you need a clarification. I don't understand. I want to make sure I get this. Right. That's fine. Ask about that. Because that's the other thing you don't want is, well, I thought the rule said this. Because sometimes, you know, your 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 teacher, your professor, you know, it's so tough to make questions because you need to make sure the question you're asking on a test has the only one answer and the one you're looking for. You know, you only want, when you write a rule, you need to make sure that there's only one way to interpret it. Sometimes that's hard. It is indeed. Todd, thanks a million for uh, talking with us about all of this stuff today. Very interesting as always. And uh, I'm sure we'll be back in touch with you during the season. And of course, at the end of spring training, you, Ray Murphy, and I will be doing the annual get ready to start the season round table. That'll be fun. Oh, man, if we're doing that, that means we're getting ready to start the season. So I can't tell you how much I'm looking forward to that, as, as, as well as talking to you two. All right. Thanks, Todd. Thanks. Todd Zola writes for Masters Ball, Rotowire, and ESPN, and appears regularly on SiriusXM and lots of podcasts, including, I'm glad to say, this one. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for Tuesday, March the 9th. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number 11 of the 2021 Fantasy Baseball season. I also want to thank our guests for this Two Tout Tuesday edition, Alex Chamberlain from Fangraphs and Tableau. You should check that out. And Todd Zola from Masters Ball, Rotowire, Sirius XM, ESPN, and all those podcasts. Alex is a fine researcher and writer and a terrific guest and a new dad. Quite a feat to do his drafts, his research, and appear on podcasts all with no sleep. Todd Zola is, as you heard, the king of all fantasy baseball media and a longtime frequent guest here at Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt, the host of Baseball HQ Radio. I sure hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. Also, remember you can stay in contact with Baseball HQ on Facebook and on our Twitter feed at Baseball HQ. You can also follow my personal Twitter feed at Patrick Davitt, where you'll always be the first to know when a new podcast is available. Please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio. Take a second to go to wherever you catch your pods. And if they'll let you, leave Baseball HQ Radio a good review and a rating. It really does help us find new listeners, and that keeps the podcast going. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again Friday with another Friday News and Notes edition, National League and American League News, the HQ Spotlight, the Minor League Minute, Frequent Flyer, and Extra Innings all coming up on Friday on the podcast with Fantasy Baseball Intelligence for Winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio. And so long. Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt.